From the moment we're born and lock eyes with our parents, we are inspiring others. By showing up as a vessel of service, we not only help others, we help ourselves. Welcome to SOS Stories of Service, hosted by Teresa Carpenter, hear from ordinary people from all walks of life who have transformed their communities by performing extraordinary work. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 25th episode of Stories of Service, Ordinary People Who Do Extraordinary Work. I am the host of Stories of Service, Teresa Carpenter, and this is our 25th episode. So very excited uh, to have gone 25 so far. And today we have another amazing guest. We always have really awesome, amazing guests. And I'm so honored today to have Oakland McCullough on the podcast. He's going to share the decades of wisdom as he's navigated leadership in the military and beyond. I'm going to read a little bit about him and then we're going to get right into the questions. Um, he was born in London, Tennessee and raised in Kirkland, Illinois. He gradu After graduating from high school, he attended the United States Military Academy at West Point for two years. He then graduated from Northern Illinois University and received his commission as an infantry officer through ROTC in 1986. In his 23-year career in the Army, Oak held numerous positions in the infantry and armor branches. He assisted in disaster relief operations for Hur Hurricane Hugo in Charleston, South Carolina, and Hurricane Andrew in South Florida. His operational deployments include Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm in Saudi Arabia, and Iraq as a general aide-de-camp and congressional liaison officer in support of operations in Bosnia and the operations officer during a peacekeeping deployment to Kosovo. He held instructor positions at the U.S. Army Ordnance School, the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College, the Australian Command and Staff College, University of South Alabama, and Stetson University. His last position in the Army before retiring was a three-year tour as the professor of military science at the University of South Alabama, where he led the training and commissioning of lieutenants and tripled the size of the program in his three-year tour. He retired from the Army in September 2019 with 23 years of active service. He then joined the staff of the Bay Area Food Bank as the associate director. He was the vice chair of, for military affairs on the Mobile uh, Area Chamber of Commerce and a member of the Mobile Rotary International Club. He then left the food bank to become the senior military science instructor and recruiter for the Army ROTC program at Stetson University in D-Land, Florida. In his nine years at Stetson, and we'll talk about this, the program grew from 15 cadets to over 100 cadets. In October 2013, he became the recruiting operations officer for the Eagle Battalion Army ROTC program at Emory Riddle Aeronautical University, where he has now more than doubled the size of the program in just six years. Cadet Command selected Lieutenant Colonel McCullough as the top recruiting officer out of 274 recruits for 2019. And then in two, and then he published in February 2021 his book, which I have read and it is amazing. Your leadership legacy, becoming the leader you were meant to be. Welcome, Oak. Thank you, Teresa. I'm very excited to be here. Thank you very much. And so, that's amazing. 25 episodes. That's that's great. Oh, well, thank you. I'm, I'm like I said, I'm so honored that it's continuing uh, to grow and, and that people are watching it and, and hopefully um, getting some value out of it. So the first thing I want to ask you is uh, what inspired you to join the service and, and be join the army in the first place? Yeah, that, I, I get asked that all the time, you know, and, and I, I, I had a, two uncles who were in the service. One was in the army and one was in the Navy. Um, and I don't hold that against him. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and they were both in the Vietnam era. And, uh, and it's funny because I asked my uncle 
the same question. I said, so mm -hmm. why, why the Navy? Uh, and he said, because I knew I was going to sleep in a bed every night. And I was going to have a hot meal every day. He said, so I, that was why he picked the Navy. Um, but uh, my father, he, he wanted me to have no part of the military. Um, and I don't come from a military family. But, you know, as I was going through my military career, my father, my wife's father, um, they would often they just didn't understand why I continued to do what I did. Um, mm. And and I, I always told them, I said, look, th this is really simple. This is how I explain it. My father never finished the fifth grade. My mother never finished the 10th grade. Now, they went back and got their GEDs, but they never finished those grades. Yeah, I went to the United States Military Academy at West Point. I became a lieutenant colonel in the army and I retired and I would not be where I am today anywhere else in the world. I don't happen anywhere else in the world. People who grow up, grew up like me don't get the opportunities that I got in this great country of ours. And this is the greatest country in the world, even with all our problems. And we have plenty. This is still the greatest country in the world. And I've been in 45 countries on five continents. So I have some basis to say that on. That's why I served in the military for as long as I did so that, you know, the sacrifices that I may have had to make so that young men and women today, your son or daughter or somebody else's son or daughter or my son and daughter could have the same opportunities that I had and the same choices that I had growing up. It's, it's really such an amazing decision to, to, to join the military and to stick with it. And I think that a lot of people don't understand all the things life lessons that we get by being in the military. And I, I feel like that's what a lot of your book was about, was taking all those lessons that you learn from your service and then even after the service with the food bank and with the cadet corps, and you wrapped all that up into sort of some key takeaways from, from being in the military. And so what I'm wondering is, what do you think, if you had to summarize the, you know, let's say the top two or three life lessons that you learned by serving in the army, what would you say they were? I would say number one, by far, number one is uh, the development of self-discipline, not discipline, huge difference between discipline and self-discipline. You know, discipline, somebody standing over you, making you do something. Self-discipline, you do it because it's the right thing to do and because you need, you know, it needs to be done. And, you know, it goes back, the self-discipline piece to me goes back to my father. And uh, again, you know, my father, I always tell people my father was a mean old man, but he is who I, I am, who I am today because of him. There is no doubt about it, or at least a huge part of why I am who I am. And he used to tell me, son, discipline yourself so other people don't, don't have, to. have to. Yep. And I, you know, he told me that when I was a little kid and I heard that all my life growing up and it just stuck in my head that, look, you know, that's the key to life. And I tell people all the time as I go around and talk to young men and women, I say, look, life, life is really pretty simple. It's about two things. It's about decisions and consequences. Every decision you make has a consequence, good or bad. And mm -hmm. you have to get to the point in your life where you're self-disciplined enough to make decisions that give you good consequences on a regular basis. Until you get to that point, life can be pretty rough. <laughs> Once right. you get to that point, life is pretty simple. And you're depending on other people to give you discipline and, and to give you structure. And you can't. You have to just figure out for yourself 
what it is you want to do and how you want to spend your time and then find an organization or a cause or whatever that aligns with your values. And, and that's what I think the military gives so many people. It gives everyone a mission or a cause that we can all be excited about and we can gather together. And you, you write about that in the book about having that unified mission that everybody can get behind and, and being able to communicate that. You have a whole chapter, I think, about communications and, and how important it is to communicate that. Have you been in organizations where that didn't happen so well? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think we've all been in organizations where where communication was not as good as it could have should have been. And I, I would you know, I would argue and I argue in the book that no organization's communications is as good as people thinks it is. Um, everybody thinks they have a great communication, but in the end, you really don't. And there's always room for improvement. So I think that 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 taught me, you know, a couple of those units I was in taught me the importance of communication. But I think the second thing that I think, you know, you asked me the, the top two or three, and I think the second thing that uh, that that the being in the military really uh, embedded in me was responsibility, especially being an officer, that you are responsible, not just for what you do, but for what everybody in your organization does and what whatever your organization does. And, you know, it, it all goes back to, you know, and we talked a little bit about this before the, the show started, you know, you can give away as much authority as you want and you should, mm-hmm. you should give away as much as you can, but you can never give away responsibility. And I had a, a, a boss who retired a four-star general who uh, kind of took me under his wing and helped me a lot. And we were talking about this one day and he said, Oak, you know, it it all comes down to a scale of leadership. And on one end, you have micromanaging people who want to control everything. And then on the other end, you've got those people who are like Attila the Hun, chaos, Mm -hmm. you know, and you want to be as close to chaos as you feel comfortable being. And the way you get there is by giving away that authority. Again, you can never give away a responsibility that is yours and yours alone. Your name is always the one on the blame line for mm-hmm. anything that does or does not happen in your organization. But but the authority piece of it, you can give away. So responsibility to me is one of the things that taught me the military did was that I am the person responsible. Uh, doesn't mean you can't use other people's ideas and all that. But mm-hmm. in the end, you're the one that has to make the decision. and You're the one that has to stand by that decision, good or bad. How do you handle when, let's say you have a team of people who are very junior, very inexperienced, how do you handle not micromanaging them when you know you're ultimately responsible, but they want to be empowered and they want to make all the decisions, but they don't necessarily have the experience or, or the, uh, the skills yet to right. do some of those things. How do you not take over? Yeah. So a couple of things that I always I, I've always used. Number one, I make it. I, you know, you can't make somebody, but I do as much as I can to make them understand that they are not alone, that they need to re- rely on those NCOs, those non-commissioned officers and and uh, and rely on their experience because nobody has all the experience. I don't care if you're making all the decisions just based on your experience, you're cheating that organization out of so much. And I use this example. You did. Yeah. When, when, when I took over as a platoon leader, there, when I got to my unit, brand new lieutenant in, in my platoon, in, in the battalion, there were three platoon leader slot. There were three brand new lieutenants, one platoon leader slot. For whatever reason, they picked me to be the, the platoon leader. 
So my company commander takes me out to my platoon, which was at a, on a live fire, dismounted live fire range. And they were broke. They had broken for lunch. So they'd been practicing all day, all day. And my platoon sergeant, company commander introduces me to my platoon sergeant, Sergeant First Class Penson. I'll never forget him. He was six foot six, good old country boy from Mississippi. <laughs> and he says, come on over here, sir. Let's have a MRE lunch and we'll talk a little bit. And so he and I went over there, we're eating an MRE. And he said, listen to me, sir. He said, you're the platoon leader. You're the one in charge. You're the, the, the person responsible. We will do things exactly the way you want to do it. He said, I've been in the army for 23 years. I was 24 years old. He had been in the army almost as long as I had been alive. Mm, wow. And, and he says to me, he says, I've been in the army 23 years. I've seen things done every which way you can imagine. He said, if you're screwing up, I'm going to tell you. If you still want to do it that way, this is your platoon. We'll do it the way you want to do it. But it's my responsibility to tell you when you're messing up. And he did. He had no problems telling me when I was. He said, sir, you really want to do it that way? <laughs> and when he said that, I would always stop and think because he, yeah. Yeah, he'd been doing this a while. So you got to use that. So that's number one. I think you got to get people to understand that they're not the only, they're the person responsible, but they're not the only one that, that is a part of that organization that can help make decisions. The second thing that I always tell them, don't be afraid to ask questions and opinions from me, the boss. I'm not going to do the job for you, but I, if you're stuck and you got some questions or you don't, you need some advice, I'm happy to do that. And the third thing that I always emphasize to them is that, look, even if you make a mistake, own up to it, take responsibility for it, and we'll make it better. Move and on. again, General Craddock, a four-star general that I used to work for when I worked for him, I worked for him, I think three times. He was a, a lieutenant colonel, a colonel, and a, and a two-star general when I worked for him, he, he said, Oak, if you didn't make a mistake today, you probably didn't do anything. What I care about is what did you do after you made the mistake? Did you try to hide it? Did you blame somebody else? And did you walk up to me and say, Hey boss, I screwed up. This is how we're going to fix it. And you think, then let's go fix it. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's really good advice. We have a couple people that just wanted to say hello real quick. I put them on the screen. So good. Tran. she says hello from Fort Belvoir. And then we've got Rick. Rick, uh, Meltanosis, <laughs> I might have said that wrong, but hello from uh, Lexington, Kentucky. Horse country. Yeah, yeah. So you served your time in the Army and you retire. And, and most of the people who serve in the military, a lot of them, they'll, they'll get government jobs or they'll go into contracting something closely related to the military, or even if they do nonprofit work, they'll find a nonprofit that's related to the military. But I was definitely intrigued when your uh, experience uh, showed that you worked for the food bank. How, how did that, how did that even? Yeah. So, so when we decided we were going to retire and I say we, cause my wife, who, you know, uh, in two weeks be 35 years of marriage. Um, why she married me, I have no idea, but now <laughs> she's stuck with me. Um, she doesn't have time to train anybody else, so she's yeah. stuck with me now. I say the same thing about my husband. <laughs> and, uh, it's like five years. <laughs> but I am trainable, as she tells me. So, okay. um, so but we decided we were going to retire, and we, we loved Mobile, Alabama, where we were stationed, for, where I ran the ROTC program. So we were looking to stay there in that area. And, um, and I was on... I was involved in the community in some 
some veterans organizations, even when I was on active duty, still on active duty and, and in some other like the military uh, council and all that kind of stuff for the Chamber of Commerce. And, and there was a Coast Guard station there. The a Coast Guard Aviation is a mo mobile, kind of like Pensacola for the for the Navy. Uh, the home for aviation and the Coast Guard is in Mobile, Alabama. And the commander had a, a monthly meeting and a bunch of us active duty and retirees would come there and we'd have lunch and we'd talk about things and do and set things up to do in the community to help veterans and, and other things. And so one of the, the guy who ran the food bank was a retired full bird colonel army who was also in this group and he was getting ready to retire from the food bank. He wanted to retire and he came up to me one day and he says, I know you're retiring. He says, have you figured out what you're going to do yet? I said, no, I'm still looking. I'm trying to figure it out. He said, well, here's a here's a pro, uh, a proposition for you. Come be my assistant for a year. And then when I retire, then you take over as the as the director of the food bank. And I said, OK, um, I said, I, I, I'll, I'll I, I would like to do that. I said two two stipulations. Number one, that I have the full operation for the day to day operations of that food bank. That's hiring, firing, everything else. If it's the day-to-day -day operations, I got it. And he said, done. I said, and that that you that it's only for a year that you retire after a year and I move in as the director. And uh and he said, done. Well, he he backed out on that one. But but the day-to-day -day he gave me. And and so I knew nothing about a food bank when right. that agreement. Such a I, mean, different... I was a armed officer. I kill people and blow stuff up. <laughs> now I'm handing out food. I mean, you don't get mm -hmm. a, more than 180 degrees than that. I mean, that no, is complete opposites. So it was it was an eye opener. It really was. But you know, I I firmly believe, and I always tell people, and I've proven it, that leadership is leadership. It doesn't matter where you learned it. Doesn't matter where you practiced it. If you can lead, you can lead any organization. Doesn't matter. And I proved it when I took over at the food bank. We were handing out 1.2 million pounds of food a year. 18 months later, when I left, we were handing out 3.8 million pounds. And you, you devised that system too. I was really interested in like the, the way the, the thing with the drivers and the computer thing yeah, about right. keeping track. And, and that's that was huge. That that, yeah. that that really allowed us to make some big changes and and to hand out to take advantage of some opportunities that were out there that we were missing because we just didn't know where they were and, and how to make it happen. So, I mean, there's all kinds of things that you can do as a leader to do those things. And leadership is leadership. Now, in the beginning, and I'm, I'm one of those guys, I don't go in and, and act like the, I'm the star leader at the very beginning. I never act like I'm the star, but I, but I, I understand there's a learning curve. And I'm one of those leaders that I, I lead by walking around and talking to people and getting to know things. And so, like, for the first month, I, you know, the one thing I always change is my wife and I go in the night before and we'll change the office. I'll put all my I love me stuff up on the walls, change where the desk is. I just want people to know there's somebody yeah. new when they come in the next morning. But after that, I walk around and I ask people questions. I just walk around, find people, start asking them questions. What do they do? Why do they do it? How do they do it? Um, and, and two things happen when you do that. Number one, you and they get to know each other. So they get to know the boss, the boss is coming down, talking to them and, and they feel like, and then the second thing is they feel like they're a part of the team because right. if the boss is willing to come down and ask them questions and listen to them, they feel then, invested. then that's pretty important. 
And, uh, and so I, I do that. And then I start figuring out what I need to change uh, from, from that month or so of just walking around, talking to people and figuring out where, where we are today mm-hmm. and then figuring out where we want to be six months from now, a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now. I just thought that was so innovative when, when you described that part in the book about understanding you guys just weren't able, you weren't being as efficient as you could be with the way that you were doing your deliveries and just making those little tweaks. But sometimes you need somebody new or you need a fresh set of eyes or another way of looking at the problem to, to understand how you can, how you can change, change the trajectory of, of what ends up happening with the organization. And I think that's, you know, and I, you, you got, you got to understand again, the boss doesn't have all the answers. Uh, mm-hmm. Very seldom does the boss have all the answers, and and you know, and it goes back to a, another example I used in the in the book. You know, my father's best friend worked at Chrysler Motor Company for thirty eight years, and what he did for thirty eight years was put fenders on whatever vehicle was being made at that plant. So if you had a problem with the ve- with the fenders on the new vehicle, who would you go talk to? <laughs> I guy. hope you would go talk to the guy who's been doing it for thirty eight years. Right. He probably knew there was a problem. He probably went to somebody, his boss, and said, hey, boss, this is a problem. And the boss said, get away from me. Just go put fenders on vehicles. Didn't pay any attention to him because you know he knew there was a problem. But who else is going to fix it besides the the experts? And you're not always the expert, believe me. And if you think you are, you need to go do something else. Yeah, you're not being challenged in your current job, and you need to go on to another job where you are being challenged. That's right. For sure. So it sounds like, and in every organization, you, you sort of talked about some of the, the things that you were able to do, like doubling the number, or I don't even remember if it was triple, but just increasing the number of cadets. And I remember there was a story that you shared in the book about how your, your, your friend or your boss would take you out for a steak dinner if you, if you ended up accomplishing that objective. Yeah. And I'm curious, um, how did you even go about doing that? What would, what were you, what would you say were some of the, cause I want to talk sort of how you also make change in an organization. Right. What were, what was, what was being done before and what changed to bring about that result? Yeah. So I, I was lucky enough when I took over that army ROTC program, the, the first instant, we'll talk about the one at South Alabama, where I took over as a professor of military science. So I was in charge of the program eventually. But I got there, I was lucky enough to get there about two months before I was going to take over. I was previously in Australia. And when my replacement got there, the Australian government has a rule that can only be so many foreign officers in the country at one time. So when my replacement got in there, the time, the (laughs) clock started ticking. And a month later, I had to be out of there. So so they they brought me early to, to that. So I got to kind of see how the, the old guy was doing things. And he wasn't doing anything horrible. It's just, you know, I got to see see how mm-hmm. he was doing it and started to figure out how I wanted to change things. And, and then what really put two things really put the. Uh, kind of a light bulb, cause a light bulb to go off in my head. Number one, uh, I went to the. the, the uh, uh, professor of military science c- command course before mm-hmm. we all took over and the two-star general walked in and he said if you're taking over a program that's not making its mission not commissioning the right number of lieutenants then you need to lay awake at night thinking about how you're going to fix that program and i was i was taking over a program that had made its mission in seven years so i i went ho- back to my hotel that night i pulled out a three by five card which still sits on my desk in my office at work and i said how can and I, I started to figure out how I was going to fix the program. And the first thing I did was I wrote down my goal. And I said, the goal is 
to have 150 cadets by the time I leave in three years. And I was taking over a program that had 53 cadets in it. So triple the program in three years. And then I started writing down things that I had to do to make that happen. I said, number one, the number one thing I have to do is I have to take care of the cadets in the program. Because if you don't take care of people, they go away and they go find somebody who is going to take care of them. And that's just leadership 101. Right. And I don't think that was being done. That wasn't being emphasized as much as it could have been in the program. And then the second thing that I wrote down was every day, make every one of those cadets want to be like me. Set the example. Let them see what an officer looks like, how they walk, how they dress, how they talk, how they communicate, how they treat people. Every day, be that person that on that pedestal that every one of them is going to want to be like. Now, obviously, we're not all perfect. I keep right. trying to convince my wife that I am, but she's not <laughs> buying it. Uh, I don't know why, but she's not. And uh, but yeah, so we're all going to make mistakes, but you got to try to be that person every day that those people want to be. And then I wrote some other things down, but I really think those were the two things. And then I went back and I was explaining that to my the people who were working for me. And I just told them, look, the only reason you're here, the only reason I get paid that you get paid is to take care of the cadets in this program, period. That's the only reason you're here. So then I, I made sure they all understood that. So then the other thing that made the light bulb go off in my head was. Master Sergeant David Powell, probably one of the best leaders I ever worked with in my 23 years in the Army. Um, and he worked for me. He was a Master Sergeant. And I'm telling you, he was he was un, an unbelievable leader. And he he and I were sitting there talking one day, brainstorming about ways that we could make make the organization better and and all that. And he just he threw out this quote that's stuck in my head and it's still in my head. And I've lived by it since then. And I believe in it. And. And I think I always kind of understood it, but I'd never heard it quoted like that. And I wish I could take credit for that quote, but I can't. It's Master Sergeant David Powell. And he said, you know, boss, because we were talking about the importance of what we were doing. And he said, boss, you know, this great leadership handed down from generation to generation is what develops great nations. And I thought to myself, wow, what an unbelievable quote. And, the, you know, the really strong part of that quote, first of all, it's, it's absolutely true. I mean, you show me any organization mm-hmm. that has great leadership and it's a good organization when it doesn't. It absolutely. But what really made, made that quote important to me was that it didn't matter. You could take that word nations and you could substitute anything else that you mm-hmm. wanted from it in, in for it. You take military, uh, a, a company, a business, a hospital, a university, a sports right. team, whatever you want, it doesn't change the meaning and the value of that quote by changing that word nations, because you know, everything, everything comes down to leadership. It really does. Absolutely. It it really does. There isn't really anything that you can do if you don't have the leadership part worked out. If, if that part isn't on is, is not on track, then no other part is going to be on track. So it's just, it's, it's so important to do that. And I had a few other questions. I was just uh, looking them up real quick about some of the uh, things that you said. And first off, I just want to say this quote that you had in chapter seven, it it really stuck out to me. And uh, average leaders raise the bar on themselves. Good leaders raise the bar for others. Great leaders inspire others to raise their own bar. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it goes back to training people and two things. You got to train people. But really what it all comes down to is culture. The culture of an organization drives everything, or it should. 
And, you know, I, I had this discussion, I don't know, about a month ago and somebody was talking to me about culture and and uh, and I started asking questions about, well, how are you developing the culture? And I wasn't getting the right answers. And I said, you know, culture doesn't just happen. And then I said, no, wait a minute, that's wrong. It does not the culture you want happens. It will happen, but it won't be mm -hmm. the one that you want to get the culture that you want. You have to invest time, energy, resources, money training, all those things to develop it. And oh, by the way, once you get it where you want it, you still got to keep doing it because guess what? People leave, new people come in, you got to get mm -hmm. them indoctrinated into the new culture so they buy into it. So it's a never ending thing. It, it doesn't just take care of itself once you develop it. First of all, you got to develop it and then it doesn't take care of itself once it's developed. You got to continue to invest time, money, effort and resources into keeping that the way you want it. And that really is what it comes down to. And if you if you develop the culture correctly, people are going to hold themselves accountable for what it is that they're supposed to be doing. And then you combine that with training so that you're training people to, to so that they can not only do their job, but they understand, you know, like in the military, you try to make people understand mm -hmm. one 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 job up so that they can understand not only what you're doing, but more importantly, the why you're doing it. Because a lot of times you don't understand why at your level, but at the next level, the why is important. And one of the things that has just amazed me um, and I, I talk about all the time is my generation never asked the question why. Somebody told me to do something, I never asked. I just, you just why. did it, yeah. This generation, they want to know why. And right. there's nothing wrong with that. There is absolutely nothing wrong with that. It just took a while for this old man to figure out that there was nothing wrong with that. But they want to know why. And if you can explain to them why, now they are motivated. Now they will do what you ask them to do because they understand what it is you're asking them to do. And I kind of use that. The thing I used to kind of make my, my, myself understand that was I hated math. I hate math. Math, I you know, M-A-F-F, -F, math. And I don't get along. I loved physics because I understood it wasn't just an equation. I was trying to figure out how to build a stronger yeah. bridge, how yeah. to build a stronger building. There was exactly. a reason why yeah. that equation was there. An equation means nothing to me. Right. Put it in context, why? Now I understand. And, and so that's when I kind of, that's how I kind of figured out yeah, there's nothing wrong with them asking why, wanting to know yeah. why. Because I wanted this, that same thing when I was a kid. I just didn't ask people why. But these this generation does, and they want to know why. And if you can provide it for them, they will do whatever you ask them to do. I, I think that one of the most frustrating things I've come across in organizations, and I want to get your thoughts on, on how you root this out, is you talk a lot about culture. And one of the things that I think is probably one of the biggest detriments to culture is when you have a toxic leader that other people can't see through. Uh, so a lot of times when a leader is toxic, he's he or she is only toxic to certain people. Yeah. And, and mainly below, not above. Yes. Always, never above. The people above think the person walks on water. Yep. And even the people below, th this person normally has like what I call the golden children. And so the golden children work really well for this person. And then they have their people that they just kind of, I hate to cuss, but shit on all the yep. time. Absolutely. And how do you as a leader, because I've had leaders that can see through these people and are just very, very emotionally intelligent and can tell 
that that somebody's a cancer on the organization. Yeah. And then I've had really, really good people, like two or three steps above that never see the way that this person is being. And so how do you as a leader stamp that out? And how do you, how do you listen to see if there's something like that going on in your organization? Yeah, I, I would talk about two parts of that. Number one, how do you recognize it? And number two, what do you do as the junior leader if you've got a senior leader that is that way? What your, what your mm -hmm. responsibility is? So number one, the way I always look at it is, is how is that person treating the people in the organization and the organization? One of the main parts of my book in chapter two's title says, it's not about you, it's all about you. And, you know, I always, people always say, well, Colonel McCullough, how can it not be about me and be all about me? And I said, okay, it's not about you and the title you get, the that you're going to get more money, you're going to get more privilege and all those kinds of things. That's not why we made you the leader. And if that's the only reason you want to be the leader, then go do something else because you're right. going to be a horrible leader. And that's the type of leader that now we're talking about is the one that is there to make sure that they get their next promotion, that they get their next whatever it is they're trying to get, their next mm -hmm. rank, their next sure. duty station that they want. Those are horrible, horrible leaders. And, and you can generally pick them out by seeing how they treat the lowest members in their organization. Um, and and, I, and I, my, second, my second battalion commander was one of those people that, that, uh, that uh, was just, it was all about him. He wanted to make general, and he did. He made a, he, I think he retired a three-star general. <laughs> Not sure how, but he did. Um, right. And uh, we all know how. Uh, but and, anyway, and sometimes you can't stop those people. So that's right. That's right. You, and, you have to and, learn how to work with them. Absolutely. And so that takes us to our second part. How, as the junior leader, do you? What's your responsibility in that situation? Because obviously, you can't change that no. leader, and you can't make them and go you away. Can't, and you can't force people to see them in the way nope, that you cannot. All, that's just going to turn people against you. Mm -hmm. So, so I always looked at it as my responsibility at that point to be the buffer between that toxic leader and my, the people I was responsible for. So you have to take the, the brunt of all that and then make sure that you protect the people who work for you as much as possible, understanding that it, you're not going to be able to, protect them completely, but try to keep as much of that from rolling downhill. Stress, can. Yeah. You be that buffer. And, and that has always worked for me. Um, and, you know, and again, good leader. You don't throw the, the senior leader under the bus and say, well, this is what the, he wants to do, but no. I, don't, I don't agree. You just say, this is not what we got to do. And you just be that buffer as much as mm -hmm. you can. And you figure out the, the right way. Because again, just because he wants something doesn't mean you have to do it the way he wants to do it. You just got to give him what he wants in the end. And, mm -hmm. and he may yell at you. Right. Been there, been there done that. But that's okay. I'd rather have him yell at me and have my soldiers or my, the people who work for me do get the job accomplished and still not be the ones who get run over in the end. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely a, that's probably one of the, I appreciate the way you answered that too, because I think that's one of the most challenging issues that uh, we face as leaders is what do we do when, when bad leaders uh, get ahead? Because they do. I mean, wonderful, amazing leaders, uh, I, I think make up a, a large portion of the military, but sure. you know, you're always going to have, and no matter what the organization is, uh, right. those people that, that still manage to succeed 
because they're useful in other reasons or they're nice yeah. to certain people or whatever. And and then what is your responsibility as a as an as a worker? What is your responsibility as as a leader underneath them? And yeah. I, I think your your advice is spot on. And that's also a mental health issue too. I think those are those times in your career where you really have to take care of yourself. You have to take care of your people and you have to be very, be very mindful of, of, of what is going on. And, and sometimes it might just be a few months that you have to deal with something like that, or it might be a few years. Yeah. And so it's something could that two, could be two years. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it could be, it could be a little bit of time. So, so, so I, I think part of going back to that is, is I think that you, you have to understand what, what your role is as the leader and the lead, and it really is to take care of the people in your organization. From you down, I mean, you can do it as much as possible to the people who you work for. And most of the time, you know, you're going to have, like you said, you're going to have a great leader and you're going to want to do everything mm -hmm. you can to help that person. And even if you have a bad leader, you have to still, for the good of the organization, you have to try to do whatever, which again, this helps that person get to his next rank that he wants, but that's okay. Because right. in the end, it's about the organization. It's not about you. Mm -hmm. It's not about him. It's not about, it's about the organization and the people who work for it. So I think, you know, you have to understand that 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 is your role is to make still make the organization successful because that's your job. Right. Um, and especially, you know, in our business where, you know, it's life and death sometimes when when we're not successful. So you got definitely have to make it successful no matter what. And you got to remember that you can learn just as much from that. Mm -hmm. from that bad leader as you can from a good one. Sometimes you can learn more. Yeah. You don't want to. Repeat I, I'm sure you've been in formation, and one of your leaders would say something, and the hair on the back of your yeah. neck stands up, and you're like, "Oh my God, I'm never going to do that." <laughs> well, we we had an admiral who remained nameless when we were on on the uh, Lincoln, uh, and we had already spent ten ten months uh, overseas in the Persian Gulf, and we were about to go back uh, and do the uh, start of the Iraq War, and he told everybody to get over it, and that became a uh, a mantra. <laughs> Uh, of, 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 of sorts. Uh, we had it on t-shirts and, and everything. Yeah. So, uh, you know, those kinds of things, <laughs> it's probably not very, a good choice of words to say over the one MC. I think what he was trying to say is just get tough, you know, exactly. but, exactly. but maybe, maybe people needed more of a, a pep talk at that point as they were going into war. But yeah. anyway, um, in chapter eight, uh, I thought your attitude on failure, uh, was really interesting. The winning is a habit, uh, mentality. And I, 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 I'm going to, this is where I get into some of the challenging questions. Cause I, so you say we, you, we should judge ourselves against others because that's life that that is, that's business. That's, that's the military. However, when we don't start and stop at the same place. So you, somebody, let's say that's from a very broken home or a damaged home, and they had a lot of abuse in, in their, in their past or a lot of trauma they're going to bring a lot of that trauma, uh, sadly into their work, into the work. Sure. And, and and you're going to have people that work for you, or you're going to work for people even who, who, who may have some unresolved, uh, traumatic issues that, that they haven't worked through. And so they're going to start life or start their career at a different place. And then in the world of business or the world of work, they're still going to be judged against other people. But should we constantly compare ourselves to others? Because a lot of the things that the messages that I think that we get these days is, you should compare yourself to where you used to be, not necessarily yeah. to the to someone else. So I was curious about your thoughts on that. Yeah. So I, I when I made that statement, and I stand by that statement, well, I'll talk about it in a minute. I, I I'm not saying that you don't compare yourself to yourself, and your goal should be to every day be a little bit better than you were yesterday. 
Absolutely. That's mm-hmm. got, That's I, I, I yeah. live my life that way. Every day I want to do a little bit better than I did yesterday. But in the end, then it is about you need to be strive to be the best at whatever it is that you are at. My, and go go back to my father, the mean old man. He he had two things. He told me two things. He said, number one, he said, Oak, I don't care if you are given the job of being the person sweeping the floors, be the best damn floor sweeper there is. Again, goes back to discipline, doing it because it's the right thing to do and all those kinds of things. And number two, which I remember, I mean, he told me this when I was, you know, 100 years ago when I was knee high to a grasshopper. He said, <laughs> he said, he had what we called the 75% rule in my house. And he'd say, Oak, whatever you're doing, you need to do it better than 75% of the people doing it. Or one, you need to do one of two things. You either need to figure out how to be, get better at it, or you need to go find something else to do. Because obviously it's not important enough for you to, to get better at it. So go find something that's more important. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, you're not going to start out at the 75%. Most people don't day one when you start doing something. So that's where that figure out how to get better. And that's where you try to figure out to be better every day, be a little bit better at whatever you're doing. But in the end, the goal should be to be and go back to my dad in the 25 percentile, do better than 75 percent of the people who are doing it. And for people who don't understand that and who don't believe that, then I, I just believe they're naive because that's how promotions are done. That's, that's, how, that's how work salaries works. Salaries are figured out. That's mm-hmm. how all those things are done. Yeah. You, so you, you are going to be judged by people who do the same job you do in your profession. Right. And so you, you got to, you got, if you really want to be the best at it, you got to strive to be the best at it. Understanding that there's always somebody who's going to do something better than you right. are. There's, you know, there's going to be somebody who runs one second faster <laughs> than you do or, you know, whatever it, mm-hmm. that is, that's, but, but again, if I go, the, the thing, the, the great way I put that across is the quote by Vince Lombardi, one of my heroes. And he says, excellence is unattainable. You can't, nobody's perfect, right. but if you strive for excellence, then you get, uh, or, or if perfection is unattainable, nobody is perfect. But if you strive for, for, for perfection, you're going to reach excellence and excellence is pretty damn good. Yep, absolutely. And I think what I, I think what I'm very grateful for, especially in the, you know, as a Navy storyteller, it's a creative endeavor and there's a lot of different skill sets. And maybe it's like this in a lot of other jobs in the military, but it, I know in the creative field, there's a, you may not be the best photographer, but you can be the best writer, or you may not be the best at either uh, photography or writing, but you may be an amazing person at graphic design or at video editing. And so we're, we're able to tap into sort of the sweet spot that, that people offer. So I, I think that's also one of the ways that, that we, at least in my field, can can mitigate some of the you're not the best you can't be the best at everything but then find that one That's, thing that you're really, really find good somebody at. else in your organization that compliments you mm-hmm. again it, it's about the organization in the end it, it is about you you got to be good at what you do and you got to you know strive to get better but in the end you know i talk about results results matter it's not your results that matter it's mm-hmm. the result of the organization you right. can be the best platoon leader in the world, but if your platoon doesn't qualify on gunnery, it doesn't matter. 
because it's the the, the platoons mm -hmm. performance oh, yeah. that matters so in the end it's all about getting that organization that you are running to be as one of the best in whatever it is it does and again doesn't have to be all you if you're a good leader you're going to know how to use the other people in your organization to make up for a weakness that you might have right. um, and, and that's okay there's nothing wrong with that yep absolutely so my uh, next question is in chapter nine um a leader never stops learning uh you have a quote in here and it says uh leaders have big libraries the rest have big screen tvs and I, <laughs> I really i like that i'm i'm curious though um with what you think about reading versus people who like my husband for an example he's very mechanically inclined i don't think he's read one book since i've met him i don't think he's read a book since high school he spends his entire day looking at youtube how-to videos or reading tech manuals or or but he's probably one of the smartest people i know but he didn't get any of that from from a book and yeah. so when, when you said that, I, that yeah so i figured you meant however people consume information because not right. everybody is, is is a reader that's right I, I absolutely i agree with that uh you know there's nothing wrong with 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 that with however you get your information however mm -hmm. you gain knowledge is what you need to know that the whole key is is that leaders never stop learning however it is that you're learning now for most people in the especially in the military for oh, the sure. majority of officers in the military no matter which branch they are that usually equates to a library i mean we most of us have a professional library i know at one point i, I had about 650 oh, books in my library i'm a huge reader yeah and I, I you know when i left university of south alabama i probably left about 250 books to start a cadet library there and i've donated a bunch of books to stetson and emory riddle and you know and, and that's okay and, and and whatever books i have in my office now my wife has already told me they're not coming <laughs> home so i gotta figure out somewhere to get them um, but, but I think, you know, the whole key is that you gotta, gotta learn. And one of the key ways to learn an easy way to learn is to read. And, you know, um, and I always encourage people to read autobiographies about great leaders because that's not there. Not only do you learn what that person did, but you figure out what was going through his or her mind mm -hmm. that led to the decision so that they were successful. They made that decision that was successful. And, mm -hmm. and it, that is so important to me, you know, to read the autobiographies of MacArthur and Eisenhower and Patton and Nimitz, who is one of the best autobiographies out there, Nimitz. But I always tell people that one of my favorite ones is Lee Iacocca. And I am now I'm dating myself. Most people don't know who Lee Iacocca is. I always have to explain it to him. But I mean, what a, what a, a great leader he was. I mean, he took Chrysler out of bankruptcy and turned it into the car maker uh, while he was the CEO, you know, and, and his autobiography was fantastic. You got to get inside the head of this mm. CEO who made all kinds of great decisions. And I think I, I talk about one of them. And I know I do in my presentation about when he was younger, he was a, a, an engineer for, mm -hmm. for building cars. And he came up with this great idea for a car and he was working for Ford Motor Company and Ford refused to build it year after year. They said, no, we're not building it. And he, he knew it was a good car and he kept going on. He was going through his book telling about how he was going to how he had to convince them. And eventually he did. And I always tell people that car was the Ford Mustang. 
I think he came up with a pretty good idea. <laughs> well, I think so too. Oh yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's fascinating. Like somebody like Elon Musk, um, I'll, I'll just watch interviews with him yeah. and, and I'm just, I'm blown away by the way he carries himself, the way he expresses ideas. Uh, so I just wondered about that because my husband has definitely got me a lot more into videos. I even watch, and, and I, I almost hate to admit it, but I'll watch these, I'll, I watch interrogation videos I just because they're fascinating to me. Like, yeah. how do you get somebody to basically admit to something that's going to put them behind bars for the rest of their lives? Right. And then what is it that you do? And how do you ask those questions? How do you build that rapport? It, it's just, oh my God. And, and so video has been a, a way that I learn a lot now. And, and that there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. I mean, and especially in today's technology. I mean, you know, when, when, when I was a lieutenant, we didn't have mm -hmm. right. internet. We didn't have video we didn't have smartphones that you could sure, pull up the sure. video on yeah, you know, yeah. it, you know that we had books and so right. we all read books but however you get that knowledge reading books reading online books audio books um videos youtube videos right. whatever however you get it you've got to keep learning that's the key absolutely like 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 ann tran said here every day is a learning day and we got a question in here um, okay Jay Johnson said, what is your biggest concern regarding the current military leadership and what would you do to change that? Uh, yeah. Uh, so I, I think it goes back to responsibility. I think we, we have to get back to the point where we are, we are getting, we're training young men and women. We got to get back to training young men and women to where they understand that it's not about them. It's about the bigger organization and that they have to be responsible for decisions that they make. And, and we got to get back to that. And unless we get back to that, we're in trouble. I agree. I totally agree. But, you know, and I, and I right now, my day job, I recruit for the Army ROTC program here in Daytona Beach. And we just commissioned 12 lieutenants uh, for our winter winter commissioning. And just, you know, two weeks ago, we commissioned 12 lieutenants. And for this year, we're going to commission 72 out of our program. I tell every single one of those lieutenants that we commission two things the day that they get commissioned. I say, number one, enjoy today because today is all about you. It's great. Mm -hmm. You sure. accomplish a great thing. But once we pin those bars on your shoulder mm -hmm. and tomorrow morning when you wake up and you're a lieutenant, it is never about you ever again. Nope. It's about your soldiers, your mission, the army, the unit, the unit, your army, the country. And then if we have time, we might talk about you, maybe. And the other thing I always tell them is go out there and make a difference because that's what great leaders do. They go, they, go, they make different, they make a difference in the lives of the people who work for them. They make a difference in their organization. And if you get high enough, maybe you even get to make a, a difference in our great country, but you, you got to go out and make a difference. That's what leaders do. Yep. It's not about you and you got to go make differences. That's the two things that i I ingrain in these lieutenants heads in, in my, that's my, I look at it as my job in oh, yeah. the job I have. And, and I tell people a lot of times, especially when they're really junior, they think they can't make a difference and they get very oh, frustrated because they think, Oh my gosh, they want to fix the problems that are up here. And I always say, no, worry about your little box. Like when I was enlisted, I was in charge of the MWR, like little cookouts and potlucks and, if I could put together a good you know, grill <laughs> that was good for the morale, that was, that was something in some way that I was contributing to the organization. Absolutely. And so 
you know, that that's what I think people have to focus on is what is in your, your sandbox that you have some sort of influence on or impact on, because ultimately it's going to, it's going to make the organization better. It's going to endear you to the team. It's going to help yourself personally. It it just, it all makes sense. Every organization I go to, I try to just go into it with, well, what small incremental tiny little thing can I do to move to make it better. forward? Yeah. And to make it better. And, and one one of the things that I always emphasize to people is if you want to make a difference, listen to the people who work for you. Listening is a skill that we in certainly in this country, but probably in the world have lost. Very few people today listen to understand. They listen just enough so that they can figure out what they're going to say next. And that's horrible. And, and we got to, we, again, we got to teach people how to listen. And that really ing- got ingrained to me when uh, a guy I worked for, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Joe Phil, who eventually retired a three-star general, great man. Um, I worked for him and, I, and he was a very busy man. And I was out, out at the National Training Center. And as I'd walk into the office, usually two, three days a week, I'd walk by him and he'd walk by me. And he was a Lieutenant Colonel. I was a captain. And he'd say, how are you today, Oak? And and the first time he'd said that, you know, I thought, okay, I'm fine. And I, I, I wanted to keep walking. And he said, no, stop. How are you today? And I thought to myself, he really wants an answer. He wants to know how, how <laughs> I am. not the typical can reply. <laughs> and, and so we'd sit there and we'd talk and I'd answer, I'd answer questions. And he asked me another one. And he, he, he knew my wife. And he'd say, so how's Kel? And how's the kids? How I know Oak and Kaylee had a soccer game this weekend. How'd they do? And we'd sit there and talk, for, you know, maybe only three, four, five minutes. But you know what? The whole time, he was a very busy man. The whole time we were talking, sometimes we talked for 10 minutes. Never once did I see him look down at his watch like, I got somewhere I got to be that's more important. In the time that we were talking and, and he was listening, that's I great. was the most important thing in his life. And a light bulb went off in my head. And I knew how that made me feel. And so I really made an effort the rest of my career and the rest of my life to to do that. And the other example of that was, and I always use this because this is so powerful. During the first Gulf War, I was the general's aide and General uh, Powell came in and he was talking to all the generals and my general was the guy I was responsible to to take care of what's in there. And all the aides were up against the back of the tent. We weren't sitting down. We were on the back of the tent. (laughs) (laughs) And all the generals are in there talking. And they're all loud and they're all talking and, you know, all these egos, mm-hmm. these one, two, sure. three, four star general egos in there. And all of a sudden, General Powell walks in. The tent went deathly silent. Everybody knew who was in charge. And he was sitting there talking to everybody. And we got what a privilege to get to listen to what he was talking about and be in the same tent with General Powell, who is still by far the most amazing man I have ever met in my entire life. And so then all the aides ran outside at the end to get everything ready for the generals who were going to come out. And I'm standing out there by the vehicle for the general that's coming out for me. General Powell walks out and he stops and he talks to a specialist and a sergeant right there outside the tent, just like he was talking to the four, three and two star general. Now, if I remember that, imagine that specialist and that sergeant. They will never forget that till the day they die. I promise you. That's the power that you can have and make simple things that make a difference in people's lives. Very simple things. 
And we all have the ability to do that if we just stop and think about what it is. That's so powerful. Yeah. In that moment, those those people were seen. And and that's and I'm sure that stuck with both of those two people oh. for the rest of their lives. You know, and sure. to the end of today, they'd all be taking the selfie with him, you know. Right. But, yeah, we didn't have <laughs> cell phones. <Yeah. laughs> so I had one last question for you, and that is I saw in the book that you said you kept a, a leadership journal. And I'm curious that what were some of the things that, that you would jot down? Now, journaling is something I, I hear so many people talking about, and I, I've had journals off and on throughout my life. And what were some of the things that you would put in the journal? Yeah, so I've kept a journal probably since about the fifth grade. I mean, every day I write down something. Um, and, you know, my wife laughs at me. She'll look over my shoulder sometimes. She said, really? Why <laughs> Wait, why do you put that in your journal? Because <laughs> it's my journal. I can put what right. I want in it. Exactly. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, but so I, I, I've been doing it for years. But I, I started, in fact, again, it was a boss of mine, a one-star general who, who uh, said to me, you know, told me that I needed, to, when I was a lieutenant, told me I needed to start a journal. And, um, and so I, I did. And every time I went to a briefing with a one, with anybody, a lieutenant colonel, when I was a lieutenant, if it was a lieutenant colonel, I had my little notes and I'd take notes and I'd go back and I'd put it in my journal to keep things that, that maybe he talked about, about maybe building trust or mm -hmm. listening to people, whatever, mm -hmm. so that I could kind of get that ingrained in me. Then right. as I read, and I, you know, used to read a lot more than I do now, um, just so busy right now but i when, when i read i would used to write notes in the margin and then once i started writing in the journal i'd write notes keynotes in the journal about from books that i read and then all those quotes that are in the book a lot of those are in my leadership journal as i read a <laughs> quote or see a quote that i that i thought was important i'd put it in the journal and i'm right now i'm in the process of changing all of those written journals into digital you know we're in that age um I probably have, I think I've probably got about seven or eight leadership journals, you know? Wow. Um, and I'm in the process of putting those all into digits. And, um, uh, and so those are the kinds of things that, that I always put in there. And, and, so, and I would also put in, you know, key, key things that, that, that came up in my career, you know, and decisions that I made and why I made that decision. Uh, just so, you know, maybe someday somebody will read it if, if they do good, if not, that's okay. I've gone back and read it several times. When I take a new position, I'd go back and read a few things that that I thought were important. And I think that's that's really powerful. And and we can do this anyway. I mean, we don't have to do it like you said. It can be even through your phone. I have a little notes notes section on yeah. here. And as ideas come to me or or lists, I'm, I'm a I'm a I'm a list person. I so am I, too. <laughs> so I write out a lot of like lists and even like small goals. I'll, I have a whiteboard right here where I put like some of my small goals. And there's just that feeling of that instant gratification of taking a small goal and using the eraser and. And taking it yeah. off kind well, of helps. You know, and, and, it's, and it's interesting because I always I talk about goals, and uh, I don't think I talk about it in this book. It's going to be in the next book. Uh, oh, the next book. I do have at least one more book in me, I think. <laughs> um, but I talk about goals, and and I, I and I always say, first of all, it isn't a goal until you write it down. It's just an idea, and it's not a goal. Mm. To be a goal, you got to write it down. What is it that you want to do? And that's why when I went back to my hotel room, I wrote down grow the program to 150 cadets. Mm, now it is a that three by five card, yeah. concrete that I can work toward. And then the second part of it is, is you've got to do something within the first 24 hours 
to start down that path to make that goal a reality. And if you do those two things, then I think you're on your way to being successful. I agree. Wow. I feel like we could just chat for five hours. But, been, uh, you know, I, I, I've, I've been on, I think just like the 27th or 28th podcast I've been oh on. It. And I always tell people that, uh, you know, especially in, in, like today, you, you don't know where that hour went. I was like, where, where yeah. did that hour go? I mean, cause it's, it's so fun. I mean, I, I love talking about leadership at this point in my life. This really is my passion to talk to as many young men and women and whoever about leadership that I can talk to. And, um, and so I, I'm very thankful for people like you who run these podcasts, who go out there and put yourself on, out there on that limb and, and invite guys like me to come talk to you. Well, you, you definitely have motivated me. You motivated uh, Anne here. She says, you know, part of motivating the team was we were, we were talking earlier. And then we had somebody else. Oh, I call it LinkedIn user when uh, they're not friends with me on LinkedIn. Their name yeah. doesn't come up, but it says outstanding. So it's probably someone of someone one of your connections. But Oak, this has been such an enjoyable conversation. I, I really am honored that you agreed to come on the show. And uh, I think a lot of people are going to get a lot out of this out of this show and some of the lessons that you imparted. Was there anything that you wanted to add that I didn't ask you? No, I, I think we, you know, there, there's obviously lots of things we could talk about, but I think <laughs> we hit the main parts in there. And I think that, you know, I, I you know, we, as you and I were talking about before, before the show, I, I think the book is, is a pretty good book. And I think it's, it's, it's for, it's an easy read. It's all about day-to-day -day things that everyday leaders can do. It is not about theory. I'm just a dumb mm -hmm. farm boy. There is no theory <laughs> in me. Okay, this is all about everyday things that everyday leaders can do. And and like I was telling you, the reason I get people all the time who ask me, so why did you write the book? And I said, I really wrote it, or who did I write it for? And I, I really wrote it for two different people. I wrote it for young men and women, aspiring leaders, high school, college age, junior officers in the army, junior leaders in the civilian world. Because this book isn't just about military. It's no, about it's not. leadership. And, and, um, and so to show them what it takes to be a leader and the things they got to do to, to be responsible and be a leader. But then I also wrote it for old people like me who, who, you know, I've had people like me who have been leaders for 20, 30 years say, Oh, you know, I didn't learn a whole lot of new things. I may have learned a couple of new techniques about something, but what I really learned was I'd be reading something. I'd say to myself, you know, I used to do that really well. I don't do that so well anymore. Maybe I need to put some more effort into doing that again. Um, and so I think, you know, somebody out there who is looking to be a leader or just trying to improve on their leadership, because again, this is a journey. It's not a destination. Right. You can get better every day. I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're a four-star general or if you're president of the United States, or if you're a, a squad leader, a, you know, corporal in charge of a mm -hmm. fire team. Everybody can get better every day. And uh, I think this book will help you if you if, and I've had people tell me, look, it's not even about not only about leadership, it's just about being a better person. Being about a good human. Yeah. Yeah. Because no. there's things in there that doesn't matter if you're a leader or not. It you, everybody needs to be able to do them. Oh yeah. They're they're great, great, great habits. And uh Jay Johnson, uh he has a comment here, Bravo uh commander and colonel. So informative and comforting to know and witness that we have such great leaders in and out of the military. Thank you for the session. Extremely well done. So thank you. Thank Thank, Thank you, Jay. We appreciate that. The book, uh, again, is Your Leadership Legacy, Becoming the Leader You Were Meant to Be. Um, Oak, thank you so much. It's been such an enjoyable broadcast. I'll, I'll meet you backstage here. I'm just going to go on single screen okay. for a moment. 
So, but yeah. thank you very much. Thanks a lot. I appreciate you having me on. Awesome. Thank you so much for watching everybody. Uh, for the 25th episode of Stories of Service, please stay tuned. Uh, this Wednesday, I'm going to have, I have about five best friends and uh, one of my five is going to be on the show. Her name is Sandy Duchak. She's the vice president of Veteran Sisters and she's going to be sharing her story of uh, sexual assault uh, while she was uh, yeah. from a doctor from the Department of Veterans Affairs and, uh, you know, the steps that she took to hold him accountable. It's going to be a very, very uh, interesting and informative broadcast and also her many uh, her many endeavors in the nonprofit space uh, on behalf of veterans uh, and other people who have PTSD and, and uh, military sexual trauma. So thank you all for watching. Uh, been an enjoyable. I hope you've enjoyed the podcast and have a great night. Bye, y'all.